Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Taffy. Hello, Gender Stories listeners, and welcome to another episode with more of my excitement because I always have amazing guests um, on, on the show, and I'm so grateful to each and every one of them for giving their time. So today, I'm going to have a conversation with Sam Lofgren, who is the owner of Companion in Shadow, and they're dedicated to helping folks in transitional times to find clarity and affirmation. Sam offers services as a professional tarot reader and educator, deaf abortion and loss doula with over 20 years of experience. They're a shadow work specialist and jewelry artisan exploring the intersections of divination and death. They're also the author of Tarot of Little Secrets and the column Death Needs a Bureaucrat on the paperwork involved with end-of-life planning. So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us for Gender Stories today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Sam, I want to talk a little bit more about your work. I was kind of looking around on uh, your website and I love the way you talk about transitions and that, yes, your focus sometimes is kind of more on death, but you really work with people on all sorts of transitions. So maybe you can share a little bit more with the listeners about what the work is about. Absolutely. So death, I take from both an end of life, but an end of any kind. In tarot, the death card is really a card about change. It's a card about endings and beginnings. Nothing is immortal. No one is immortal. And no relationship is immortal. No state of being lasts forever. I'm a huge fan of the idea of embracing impermanence, whether the culture does or not. So the vast majority of what I do is really, as a friend of mine gave me the metaphor, I'm really kind of out in the darkness that people experience in their lives, handing out candles and pointing the way home. Mm. And that looks like a lot of things. That looks like tarot readings for clarity or casting readings for clarity. That can look like helping folks, especially around issues of access in bureaucratic systems where I live, there's an amazing amount of social services and support and and that sort of thing. But getting in and getting over the paperwork, especially if you're dealing with dysphoria or anxiety or, frankly, better things to do than fill out giant piles of paperwork to get the help you need, it's that system is very overwhelming. So anything that's in there or any kind of loss, I'm... It, ordained minister and a lot of my training and certifications are around endings there's a ton of people who want to you know help bring babies into the world and i'm glad those people are necessary but i'm really here to help people get out either of life altogether as we understand it or even just the relationship they're in i'm a divorce celebrant Mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm a a celebrant of the closing of a chapter so that you can write a new one. 
And that appears across my work in counseling, in tarot, in doula work, and in my writing. I love that you said kind of regardless of what dominant culture thinks, right? Because I don't think that at least where we live in what is currently called, you know, uh, the United States and currently known as Minnesota on the Konani Shinabilan, I don't. I don't think that really the dominant culture does very well with impermanence in my experience. Like I deal with a lot of clients who don't have a good relationship with the idea that we have a finite time in this form, right? That we're all going to die. That's the only thing that we can be certain of. And I think there is part of dominant culture that doesn't want us to think about endings or even death. And that makes it really challenging for folks. I think a lot of it has to do with the ongoing Salah colonial project and white supremacy in my experience. But I, I just wonder if you have thoughts on that, you know, just an easy question that I'll throw to you that right there on the fly. <laughs> Except I have an actually easy answer, which is to be devoutly anti-capitalist. That's great. Tell me more. So <laughs> I, and it, it shows up in my work and I've done a lot of work around decolonizing death and pulling apart the strings of capitalism and patriarchy that would tell us that if we just buy the right gadget or the right face cream or what have you, that somehow we can not only live forever, but that we can be young forever because we value youth more than we value the wisdom that comes with living a life. You know, at this point in my career, finding space for the wisdom that can only show up when you have experienced a kind of a rebellion against that culture that says, no, don't worry about it. You're never going to die as long as you buy the right toothpaste. You know, there's a lovely folk artist, uh, musician that I ran into very early in college. And my absolute favorite song was You're Still Gonna Die. Now, this delightful thing that it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you buy, it doesn't matter how fit you are, you will experience an ending. And at the end of your life, that ending is death. And we can either embrace that, I'm a practicing Buddhist, and so a lot of what I, my personal practices that support my work are around learning how to die well without fear, without the terror that somehow this is going to end, because we don't address that in the culture. We don't address anything that would allow us to experience death in a less traumatic way, whether it's our own or someone else's. And we teach our children when that first pet passes away that death is a natural part of life and then refuse to live that way. As though the the cycle applies to those who we see as smaller or lesser or weaker than us, but not to us. Somehow we're above it or beyond it. And that, that shows up in the culture all the time. When we see how death is treated in the media, there isn't kind of a calm acceptance. It's always presented in, almost always presented in media as this big traumatic event. And sometimes it absolutely is, but it doesn't have to be. And the notion that we only expose ourselves to traumatic experiences of death, where there isn't a family celebration of that end of life, is 
damaging and it helps feed the machine, honestly. Absolutely. I mean, I I consider myself so fortunate and privileged to have been brought up in a culture where, you know, I feel like death was all around. You know, my grandmother had pictures of all our dead people and had candles and talked to them every day, you know, and, and in Sicily, Day of the Dead is a big thing and the, the ancestors bring like toys to the children and there are sweets. So there's kind of celebrations around there, similar yet different than other celebrations that lots of other folks have here in um in the US and and moving here 11 years ago, I I think that's when I realized how much kind of a a poor relationship with death is part of kind of white supremacy and that that kind of ripples through. And sometimes people not only have a a bad relationship with death, but also a poor relationship with transitions and endings. I love what you said about celebration, right? Kind of sometimes ending something frees up space for something else, but that's often not how people approach it. So what would you say to your clients who have a really hard time with any kind of ending, any kind of transitions that mean it's the end of something, whether it's whether it's death or some other kind of transition? Absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent. So many other cultures have death as a part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. And American culture, particularly based on the capitalist medical model, treats death as failure. And that's a conversation I have with my clients a lot, that the ending is not a failure. You didn't make a mistake. Even if you made a mistake, even if we went back and you wouldn't date this person again, you wouldn't have this experience again, you would have come out earlier, you would have done things differently Hanging out with all of that space is assuming that an ending is a failure. Yes. And it isn't. It's just an ending. And the culture heaps so many additional layers of thought and anxiety and fear on top of what it is to end a thing. And so we have all of that performance anxiety that we carry around all the time. Now, The first time I gave a public reading, was I nervous? Sure. But I got to the end of that very first reading and went, oh, and now it's done. I didn't actually grab the mountain of anxiety that is, but what happens if I never get another gig? What happens if I can never help another client? That's a lot of me working with my own stuff. and being very counter to to the culture because I was quite young at the time when I went through home. But the notion that somehow the ending of your day is acceptable, you know, especially in in a capitalist culture like that, the ending of your work day, you know, Friday, the ending of your work week is to be celebrated, but Monday is to be hated as the end of your weekend. The calendar days are kind of arbitrary. <laughs> and so we treat one of them as tragic and the other one is celebratory. But in some sense, like you said, in order to get enough space, enough time, enough internal space for something new, you have to let something go. And that's not failing. That's, Mm -hmm life moving forward, whether we are along for the ride 
voluntarily or involuntarily, to be able to approach it as part of the rhythms and part of the cycles. Now, I we live in Minnesota. The leaves are changing. The mm-hmm. They'll fall. The snow will come. And we all do that kind of simultaneously looking forward to the spring. And that's where the piece about the shadow work of it goes. The less you reject as radically as possible, the less suffering you're going to have because you're not resisting this notion wrapped up in the idea that somehow you failed because something as simple as your day and as complex as your entire life has ended, that that's not failing, that that's the rhythm of the world as we actually understand it when we get quiet about it. I love all of that. As you were talking, I had this image, you know, when you were talking about people having difficulties letting go, you know, capitalism very much encourages us to hoard things, you know, even like hoard experiences, hoard as many work hours as we can, hoard as much fun as we can in our weekend, right? Hoard as much summer as we can. And and this is really part of anti-capitalism is being able to like let go of things and be with kind of what is in this moment rather than trying to grab onto things. And and um, it is very countercultural in many ways, not just when it comes to death, right? I, I just see it so much in my work. Um, you know, not enough hours in the day. I'm not working enough. I'm not resting enough. I'm not taking care of myself enough. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot of pressure we all put on ourselves because of the world we live in. But well, how do you finding yeah. enough? Right, exactly. Who's defining enough? That's this idea that we're not doing X, Y, Z enough. I have helped hundreds of people and something very significant to them. Up to and including the end of their life, the literature is accurate. Nobody says on their death that I wish I would have spent more time at the office. No one says... I wish I had more money. What they say is I wish I had a greater legacy. I wish I had a better way to support those I'm leaving behind. It's the only time anything remotely touching capitalism comes up. And it's actually a a process that I work through with clients when I begin some of the planning process for how they'd like to leave is to stop and imagine what that life looks like, to really imagine in a felt sense what memories they would like their people to have of them. And if they don't feel like they've created those memories yet, to then spend that time going and creating them, because that's what people talk about at the end, is the memories that they have in the community that they've fostered they don't talk about whether or not they had the right toys or the, the good car or the house. It's all just stuff when you boil down something important enough to really get at what people value. I love that because what you're what I'm hearing really is that you're talking about how do we have a, a good life so that we can have a good death, right? And the having a good death is, there is this kind of uh, mutual relationship. I'm thinking about my friend um, Colleen Cook, who was interviewed for Bespoken Bones, uh, you know, my friend Pavani Maurice, um, a podcast, and was 
you know, Colleen was just amazing and just so much love. And one of the things I loved about their death, Colleen knew this was coming, right, for all the years after the diagnosis and that, you know, every you know, every year was kind of defying the odds, you know, and another miracle and every day was a miracle. And what Colleen really focused on was this idea of what is my legacy, building more community, trying to leave more justice behind them in the world, right? And and I, I wonder what all of our lives would be like if we focus more on what is it that I really want to create in the world rather than what is it that I'm afraid of losing? Am I making sense? And I, for example, uh, kind of getting into the shadow work piece of it, Mm -hmm. the workshop that I run starts there, starts with what, don't, don't worry about how we're going to get there, but what does that life actually look like? We can build a plan to get there, but knowing that there is an ending and it presupposes that you're going to die, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen to you. And so what does life look like when the end is certain? Because it changes your values. It changes, I shouldn't say it changes your values. I should say it changes the expression of your values. It pulls that much more forward. And Colleen's a beautiful example of that. Now, knowing that the end is coming from the moment of diagnosis, she knew she wasn't going to survive. Yes. And... Everything and every moment that was possible to fill with love and community and legacy was a deliberate choice, was a deliberate effort. And ultimately, shadow work, once we get past the initial rejection of ourselves, is ultimately about building that legacy. It's about finding the light again. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, it it can't be light all the time. It's why we don't live forever. If we live forever, every day loses meaning. If everything was positive and sunshine and rainbows all the time, we wouldn't appreciate it Mm -hmm. because we wouldn't know differently. Mm -hmm. And that, more than anything else, you, you find a spot that is an appreciation of shadow, an appreciation of tougher times and loss and ending because you cannot have a new beginning if everything's running in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I was thinking, as you were talking about that, I was also thinking about the way in which so many of us in like trans and non-binary communities relate to gender, right? And sometimes I wonder if, because we do have that experience of liminal spaces of ending and beginnings of kind of looking almost at the borderlands of gender for want of a better word, you know, Um, if that kind of gives us a different relationship to gender that then we bring back sometimes into dominant culture, at least that's what I'm trying to do and kind of trying to illuminate that actually we all have a relationship with it. So what do you want to do with it? What kind of really intentional awake and aware relationship do you want to have with this big kind of construct and also identity and experience, right? And I wonder how that shows up in your work, if at all. Like, as you were talking about this, I can imagine multiple ways in which gender probably shows up in your work. I Well, let's start with mine, because it informs all of that work. I My pronouns are they, them. I am absolutely envy, but I'm relatively gender apathetic. 
my pronouns don't carry weight for me. And so my relationship with gender has always been really fluid. I didn't experience a lot of dysphoria. And the moments that I did were extremely intense, but rare. And so there's kind of this, this range of knowing when it's really important to get the identity piece of it right. And that shows up in the value. And so when you're hanging out at the edge, I don't care why you're hanging out at the edge, but gender in particular, because it's so focused in this culture that, you know, it, beyond just, and pink is for girls and, and blue is for boys. You know, when you look at from the very beginning reveal parties, before you even get here, people have made assumptions about who you are. And you have to decide to accept or reject that. And it's so common in shadow work with my trans and NB clients to find the moment where they realized that they had internalized society's rejection of their own expression of such an important part of themselves. Now, my, my gender apathy, when I really sort of step back with it, is important to me. The fact that it doesn't matter to me is actually where it matters. And, you know, we see so much internalized rejection as people are trying to pass. They're deciding if they want to go through physical transitions or hormonal transitions and all the way into death work where now that's so much of where death death needs a bureaucrat is coming from is ensuring that those wishes and those identities that are so important that have been so worked on you know all the way out kind of onto the edges and then all the way back into the culture are honored and respected so that you don't have a moment that is just because you got sick now everyone's calling you a name you haven't chosen for yourself regardless of what that is that people are ignoring boundaries or identity in a moment you didn't necessarily control more than anything you know it's it's one thing when you have a chronic diagnosis or you have a terminal diagnosis and you have time but a lot of my work especially in the the ambient trans community is around understanding that that moment can be whenever you won't have control of it necessarily and ensuring that your paperwork is in order actually gives you the opportunity to maintain control and identity so that it's not coming down to folks that have that same cultural value around longevity or around who you are. You've done so much work in accepting yourself and walking through your own shadows around gender that it's deeply important to me as kind of my cultural landmark, my, my little flag somewhere that I'm waving around, that that work be honored just because you got sick doesn't mean it's not still worth honoring, that it's worth respecting. And the paperwork gives us the legal protections to ensure that fact, especially as folks farther out in the margins around gender have more complicated situations with children and possessions and work and marriage and the legalities that present themselves in times of crisis or end of life. Mm -hmm.
And I love what you said about like the role of community. I'm imagining in my experience, actually, community is almost like a buffer for a lot of trans and or non-binary folks between us and maybe family of origin or folks who hold more dominant cultural values. And it sounds like part of your work is also making sure that there is paperwork in place to strengthen the buffer, right? To give, to make sure that people um, are honored in the way they want to be honored. And and it's kind of coming up to the month uh, where in this part of the hemisphere, different traditions kind of celebrate death and are in relationship with ancestors. And also this Transgender Day of Remembrance that I think a lot of us have a lot of complex feelings around, right? And I, and I wonder if that shows up in your work at all, kind of what is this time of the year like for your work? This time of year is extremely busy in what I do. And a lot of that is reading for folks who, you know, the, the nights have gotten longer and we're starting to see it now. And it's in the dark at night when we're alone, when we're curled up in our house and not distracted with our everything else that's light and bright and shiny and kind of worrying around, that we encounter ourselves really in a head-on sort of, of way. And this time of year, you know, I have my own, my ancestral shrine is up all year long, given what I do. This time of year, I actually cover it so that my focus can be on helping other people honor their ancestral backgrounds, honor the fact that they will be future ancestors, that ancestors don't necessarily mean blood lineage. Mm -hmm. Now, especially when we talk Transgender Day of Remembrance, those are my trans ancestors. Those are all of our trans ancestors. Yeah. And honoring them and remembering them. You know, I have the names of everyone that I encounter in the community. That's what goes up on my, my ancestral altar this time of year. And a lot of the work that I do, this is one of the only acceptable times of the year to talk about death mm. because we talk about ancestry and you can't talk about ancestry without talking about people who've died. And so that opens a doorway to have these really important conversations about what happens when you're an ancestor. Mm -hmm. And that those are amazing conversations, right? Those can be life-changing. I remember one of my good friends and, and sibling and elder, um, Donald Engstrom Reese, does this exercise in one of the classes that uh, Donald teaches about, you know, imagining ourselves as ancestors and what kind of ancestors do we want to be, which is very much, I think, connected to what you were talking about, kind of imagining our legacy, right? What is the kind of life um, that we want to have? And, and I think when it comes to, ge to gender, for me, what's so complex is that it takes so much work because of what you mentioned, that predetermination, right? That anticipatory predetermination of you're going to come into the world and other people have already decided 
which box you're expected to fit in, which is also fascinating because actually the person who started the gender reveal party really regrets it and wrote about how, please, people stop having those. Our child is actually non-binary and we didn't know what a big mistake we were making and how that would suffer because of this choice we're making, right? Um, I lost my thread a little bit, but I'm sure I'll find it again. So this idea that in some ways, when it comes to gender, we have to sift through all of that stuff to even figure out what does that mean for us, right? Because there is just so much debris, for want of a better word, from the culture that needs to be kind of dusted off. Kind of dusted off and sorted through, you know, finding finding what's valuable in what has fallen. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it, I always think about, I always start readings around dysphoria with the tower card. And it has everything to do the the deck I wrote, the tower card is one of the, one of the people is jumping and the other one is falling as the lightning strikes a lighthouse. And I always sit with readings around gender in general around that lightning bolt moment and now you're sorting through the debris your debris the culture's debris your relationships and you know if you weren't out or you weren't comfortable being out that relationship will look differently but you control the narrative on that relationship and on that history whether someone else tried to write it for you or not. And that's kind of where I land with the reveal parties. I am so glad that, that she came back and said, no, really, please stop doing this. You know, we didn't know. And that is a lesson that I take forward so many times that is, okay, so we didn't know. And now we know. From Tara's perspective, one of my favorite narratives about the tower is that that lightning bolt comes from the fool because that tower was something the fool built before they knew better. Mm. And so that shout of insight, that moment of insight of, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't how this is, causes that tower to fall. And you have the choice. You can fall with it or jump. But that doesn't mean that once that tower's down, there isn't a tremendous amount of little bits and big bits. And where did that stained glass window go? Is it still intact? I liked that window. And you can keep the window and not, you know, the West Hall that felt awful and doesn't embrace who you want to be in the world. Even if you built the West Hall, you don't have to keep it. and that moment that is realizing how much at least in areas you do control that you can write that narrative in a way that's affirming to you and then how much you can do to really support that narrative against a culture that would make determinations otherwise you know I especially dating the podcast a little, but the, you know, the Title VII cases that are in the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court right now are going to have dramatic impact on the community. So what can we do to sort through that? Because in, or 
you know, in understanding that maybe reveal parties are a bad idea. Maybe, maybe the cultural insistence on cisgender binaries makes no sense Mm -hmm. without also failing to understand that the, the tower exists. Now, yes, we can do what we can to buffer it and to sort through the debris that exists from ideally tearing it all down. (laughs) (laughs) But being in a spot where we can do what we're able to do, kind of hanging out in that circle of of influence, that's sort of, if you think about it like concentric circles, uh, I'm borrowing Stephen Covey's language here, the circle of influence is almost always smaller than that wider circle of concern. If you work in that smaller circle, and that has a lot of power in it, that circle gets bigger. You know, finding out that the influence, the gender reveal parties, you know, they, she may not have gone mm-hmm. back on that if the child wasn't non-binary. And that's got to be brave as daylight. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it's fascinating, right? Because what we experience changes us, right? That experience changed that person. And think about that circle of influence also makes me think about how ancestors influence us, right? So how kind of, and how, what, what we know about our ancestors influence us. And so in, in some ways, in trans and, and non-binary communities, we have this legacy of systemic violence, which is really something that we connect to, right? Every Transgender Day of Remembrance, we're basically honoring people who often have been killed at the ends of systemic violence, whether they died at the end of somebody or died by completing suicide because of all the systemic issues that our communities faces. And so kind of really thinking about that legacy and those ancestors and then thinking about how that influences us, those that come after us, right? And uh, I was just thinking about um, how do you feel ancestors can support us in tearing that tower down, in tearing that cisgenderist kind of binary gender tower down? How can they inspire us or um, teach us or be with us in that process? A lot of it is just, to me, is knowing who they are, Mm. not how they were presented, not how we were told they are, who they are and stepping back into the idea that these are real people who lived real lives just like you now it's it's easy especially you know it's the 50th anniversary of stonewall mm-hmm. it's easy to vault those folks out of their everyday lives to make them heroes to make them villains to make the system not you know to to fail to understand that we have influence over the people in the system. For me, it's really about ensuring that I remember the humanity of those ancestors, because that's what I would want carried forward is my humanity in the work that I'm doing for better or for worse. And it's for me, sometimes the for worse, what we would label as less desirable behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about, the Stonewall riots in particular, 
nobody is openly advocating throwing bricks at everything. Well, that's not true. There are people who do that. <laughs> but finding ways to to step outside and understand that outside of that moment, there are people living their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're living their lives as authentically as they know how under the systemic pressures that they're under at the time. Yeah. I love that because they're, you know, when we think about Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera or, you know, Brenda Howard who started the first Pride, their lives were so much bigger than this moment when they were like, enough is enough, right? This was not a moment they went looking for. This was a moment where they knew they, um, you know, they defended themselves, they defended their lives, they defended their community, you know, and that kind of enough is enough. And I think that's a beautiful lesson in terms of ancestors, right? And then I'm thinking about when we go farther back, uh, you know, I had this experience with ancestors a few years ago around this time where I think for a lot of trans and non-binary folks, the um, either rejection or difficult relationship with current family members can really influence the way we feel belonging to our families. And I had this experience where I felt connection to much further back ancestors who where actually I did feel a sense of belonging and that there were other people living in this liminal space, even though maybe the word trans definitely probably didn't exist in my, in the area where I come from. And, but it was this very clear sense of belonging. Right. And, and I wonder if that, you ever experienced that in your work, um, either within your own lineage or with clients, helping them connect to a sense of belonging through relationship with ancestors? Absolutely. And especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. The idea that colonialism isn't permanent in either historical direction, it can't be. Nothing is. If we accept the premise that nothing is, as you reach back, for example, as a two-spirit Anishinaabe, my ancestral culture has a spot for me. My ancestral Haitian culture has a spot for me. My Midwest Lutheran at a summer picnic culture doesn't really. <laughs> and being able to reach back in the same way that, like I said, once we accept the premise that nothing is forever, nothing is forever in either direction, in any direction, really. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, time's not binary either. And finding spaces where you can, at least conceptually, you know, my, my own genealogical research is tumultuous at best. Now, the, the written records from oral traditions are not something I can find. That doesn't mean those people aren't there. They're absolutely there, even if I don't know their names, even if I don't know when they lived. That energy is in my lineage, that blood is in my bones, and I carry it with me. And so do you. So do we all. In a a world that is fascinated by 
quantum and lineage and 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And I would make the argument that that itself is the system. Now, having, having folks that I have served who are descended from those that were stolen to then have to pay for the privilege to find out what country they were stolen from sounds oppressive to me, you know, but that doesn't mean that there are not people back home and that that's not valuable. I don't want to malign folks for whom that's been really helpful mm-hmm. in, in recapturing who their ancestors are, but it's not necessary. You know, at the end of the day, there's a, a space I hold for folks who don't know, mm-hmm. who have suspicions, but mm-hmm. don't know because they can't know because we erased those, the, the victors erased that part of history for them. And so holding space for journeys, energetic journeys that are about reconnecting in a really intensely personal way to this community of folks who've come before, whether that's ethnic lineage or ideological lineage, and I tend to lean toward the latter, that are people like you, people who value what you value, have been here. They've done this. Ask. Mm -hmm. They know. And from a skeptical perspective, I don't care if you're talking to the inside of your own brain and your own subconscious wisdom. The collective unconscious knows too. And and we have good science to support that sort of journeying as how we experience the past, how we experience belonging, how we experience the future before it ever happens, assuming time is linear. And I'm not convinced. I love that you mentioned the skeptical part of your work, which is, I saw that on your website and I was like, I love the skeptical aspect because sometimes people really get lost into this place of like, am I making this up? Is this all in my head? And I said, well, I don't know, but what difference would it make? Right. And one of the things that um, I saw you talk about on your website, when you talk about the skepticism is no division between um like the mundane and the sacred, right? The mund- or what we might consider kind of the mystery and and the mundane. Don't, there isn't this binary once once again, which to me it's very appealing because that's how I experienced it growing up. That you know the way you like clean your house or make your bed is just as important and mysterious as kind of praying or lighting the right candles or talking <laughs> to the ancestors. And um, and I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that piece for people who really struggle with their own skepticism when it comes to connecting with ancestors. Absolutely. I So I'm both a skeptic in the sort of traditionally understood English language sense of, yeah, maybe. Uh, but also a philosophically trained Peronian, like high academic skeptic. Uh, my my thesis in undergrad was about how I'm not convinced forgiveness is real. 
from a skeptic's point of view. I'm not sure that that's something that exists because of how how a whole bunch of philosophical nonsense operates in the English language. But from a skeptical point of view, the thing we seem to all agree on is that energy makes up reality. The slightly more radical take on that is that that reality is a co-created hallucination that we all just kind of agree on. <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm with you. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist at heart. And so if it's useful and not harming anyone, go for it. But how you clean your house, whether you clean your house, yes, <laughs> has just as much mystery in it as ritualized, acceptable, there's some pretty big air quotes there, mm -hmm. acceptable forms of engaging with mystery. Yeah. And I see it in the ancestral work that I do. I see it in the all the liminal work that I do, uh, which includes a great deal of tarot. I see a lot of skeptics, the the meetup I run is actually called Seekers and Skeptics. <laughs> Skeptics welcome. Because from a pragmatic point of view, if we accept the idea that energy is reality, it's all, everything is made up of energy, and that our thoughts are how we experience reality, those two in conjunction mean that how we think about things is what actually makes them real to ourselves. You know, if we are kind of co-creating an understanding of, of reality, if you're reaching for the part of yourself that you want to call your ancestors, you want to call divinity, you want to call your subconscious understanding, cool. Please do. Is it helpful? Do you live a better life because of it? Call it marshmallow fluffy bunny if it makes you feel better. <laughs> like which isn't to which isn't to take away from people for whom these are really deep experiences in their traditions, in their ideas. So much as it is to open the door to being able to accept the possibility that the everyday mystery is really where it's at without everything needing to be perpetually significant in the exact same breath that sometimes I just need to scrub my bathroom. There's no mystery in that, but whether or not I choose to do that out of respect for how I talk to myself about that is very similar to, to, to pull this back to gender. How do I talk to myself about that? Yes. How do I talk to myself about what I'm honoring, what's important, what I value? And I'm not scrubbing the shower for the sake of because some outside force somewhere, my you know, my ancestors, my my parents, my society at large, something I read on the internet, good housekeeping, whatever, says that I need a clean shower so much as that's somewhere for me to 
be clean and present myself in the world the way I want to. And pulling that around to, you know, working with, working with ancestral energy, no one is going to tell me that they don't have ancestors. I, I can pretty devoutly prove that that's fact. You didn't get here without somebody preceding you. If you accept that for the premise of education, that there are people who know more than you, that there are people you can learn from, why do those people have to be currently physically walking around or have written something in a book you can access? Don't. Because that energy was still expended and it's still something that people pay attention to. And anytime you have people paying attention to a particular energy, there's power there. Mm-hmm. I love that because it, in, in a way it is so simple and so accessible, right? When I work with folks who are like, I don't know how to get in touch with my ancestors. I don't have practices because they've been stripped by the ongoing settler colonial project and assimilation into whiteness. One of the things I always say is like, it's okay, just sit and invite whichever ancestor has something to share with you that it is for your benefit to like talk to you. And then the answer is always like, well, what if it's in my head? I was like, well, that's okay. (laughs) You know, what are they saying? Then we can pay attention to that. And And I wonder if there are particular practices that you think can be helpful, especially at this time of the year, at least in the North the northern part of our globe. Um, I love that also in the southern part, you know, they're celebrating Beltane at the same time because equilibrium and all things, right? But in in our part of the world, as we're getting, you know, the nights are getting longer and we're getting closer to the ancestors, are there practices that are easily accessible for people who maybe don't have a strong sense of... Um, of lineage in any direction, whether it's blood lineage or whether it's spiritual lineage, who don't feel yet called to any particular tradition. What is the skeptic's easy take on how to connect to your ancestors? <laughs> yes, that's the that's the much shorter question, much better yeah. question. Yes. <laughs> I just want to make sure I understand what we're what we're asking for. That that's what I'm asking. <laughs> Honestly, I would say more than anything else the most accessible thing i teach and the most accessible thing that i use is breath carry it with you you're not even thinking about it but it's the same air your ancestors were breathing and it's a very simple thing to just stop and watch now to to hold some space with the the part of you that is capable of watching your own experience three breaths five breaths an hour's worth of breaths it's up to you but five minutes of just sitting and breathing particularly if or lying down or walking through the woods or however you you want to work with that Provided you're doing so safely, please don't do this at a stoplight. But, (laughs) you know, the ability to just sit down and, okay, I invite those who have something to say that is ultimately for my benefit. 
or informative or helpful. You know, it keeps us out of that sort of love and light without solidarity and action sort of <laughs> spiritual bypassy space. Yeah. We're not saying what they have to is necessarily pleasant. No. But of benefit. And to just sit with that intention and even repeat it in your head as a mantra. Just for the next X window of time. And I do recommend putting a time window on this and using a timer because it's very easy to get lost in that liminal space and kind of float around, which you're going to do automatically. That's unless you have a tremendous amount of mind training, being able to drift off is the natural and reinforced habit. But deciding where that drift is going to go gives your brain something to do because it will immediately get bored and try to do something. <laughs> <laughs> but if you tell it what, what you want it to do is to help encourage you to focus on your breath, relax as you're able, and that those ideas, those memories, those energies that are of benefit to arise. And then just hang out with that. Thank it. Let it go. Take a few more breaths to kind of come back into your quote-unquote mundane everyday experience. Now, mostly for your safety, let yourself sort of readjust to the idea that there's a roof over your head and walls and you know, find, a, find a way to ground yourself back into your body. And then how you handle that information is really up to you. But basic sitting practice with a lot of intent, again, it's sitting practice is what it's called in my tradition, but it's not, you don't have to necessarily be sitting, is an excellent way to open that liminal space while giving it a strong enough container that if something shows up that is unexpected or kind of spooky for, for a variety of reasons, um, and I've had some really powerful experiences with just this very basic practice. It doesn't have to be some big involved thing. Sit, give yourself a few breaths. Invite that ancestral wisdom. Take a few breaths and reorient yourself. Get up and go about your day. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful and very easily accessible practice for anyone of any ancestry or any lineage. So thank you for sharing that. Well, as ever, I feel like I could talk with you for hours and I want to be <laughs> respectful of your time. So one of the questions I always ask us at the end is, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you really wanted to talk about on the podcast? You know, I think we've said what we need to say. And I, I'm glad for the opportunity to, to talk about parts of my work I don't normally get to. No. I, other than the usual call to action of please do your paperwork. And <laughs> if, if, you, if you need help with that, that's what I'm here for. Great. And if people do want support with that, where can they find you? So the website is companioninshadow.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, both of them at Companion and Shadow. And fairly, Instagram has more of, uh, more of my work right now. The website has the most. 
That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening, Gender Stories listeners. I hope that you found this conversation as engaging as I have. 